At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Through our message series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food, we'll unpack what Jesus has to teach us from the time He spent around the table. Here, in the ordinary, everyday sharing of a meal, we'll discover who Jesus came for, what it takes to be with Him, and how you and I can be changed by His greatness and grace. Father, we do stand in wonder of who you are. When we think about all of your glory, all of your grace, every name that you've been given, every name that we know you by, mercy, merciful one, almighty one, healer, provider, Jireh, Yahweh, the great I am, the beginning and the end, the alpha, the omega. King of kings and Lord of lords, the son of man, son of David, son of Adam, second Adam, perfect and almighty, righteous, holy, loving, gracious. Father, our minds can't even comprehend the vastness of who you are. So in these simple moments of worship, just receive the praise of your people. Receive our words. Receive our hearts. Receive our lives. May everything that we gave you this morning bring you honor and glory and praise. Give us eyes to see as we open up your word. Give us ears to hear all that you would have for us this day. It's in Jesus' powerful name the name that is above every name that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. It's great to be with you. Thank, uh, let's thank our worship team this morning for leading us. Amazing job. Thank you so much. Now that I think we've got my microphone working as well, I, I had like three false starts there right in that wonderful moment. But uh, just so great to be with you here today. Pastor Chris sends his greetings. He is on spring break with his family, as I'm sure many others are as well. But we are still here in Michigan and grateful to be here in the house of God with his people. So I'm thankful. Please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7 this morning, if you would. That's where we're going to spend our time together. Luke chapter 7. A few years ago, a popular Christian comedian made a video on the official rules of the pre-meal prayer. Did you know there was such a thing? See, when it comes to pre-meal prayer, there's all kinds of things that he points out that can be confusing. Are we supposed to pray? When are we supposed to pray? Who's supposed to pray? He was hardly the first one to use prayer before a meal as the basis for humor. A lot of our minds might immediately go to scenes with Will Ferrell or Ben Stiller or Chevy Chase. But he did bring up a lot of Christian quirks that I've experienced countless times, like, and this is participatory, so get involved here, how many of you choose to pray when the appetizer comes out? How many say, that's the time, that's the occasion? Not many. How many say, no, you wait until the main entree. That's when you pray. Raise your hand if that's you. Do the rest of you just not pray at all? <laughs> there could be bad things that happen. Or what about like when the salad comes? It's a side salad. Do you treat it like an appetizer and wait to pray until later? Or are you supposed to pray right then? Because salad counts as being more important than chicken wings. So 
You might as well pray at that point in time. What about if there's chips or bread at the table? Should you pray when those come out? But what about when the, the bread perhaps is like more important or significant than just normal table bread? If it has like cheese and oregano on it, then, then do you pray? Uh, we do these things where we make these decisions about what qualifies as big enough to solicit a prayer. It's like, hey, this is less than four ounces. We don't need to pray. We're going to leave it alone. And other times we say, yeah, we need to pray now. Or, or what about when you go to a restaurant and you're only going there for dessert? You've already had a meal. So are you supposed to pray when that dessert comes? And I know we've all fought it. Some of us have been through the awkward moments of actually doing it where you're like, Lord, thank you for this key lime pie. May it turn into kale and blueberries within my body. <laughs> Just please do a miraculous sign here because this is going to wreck me. You know what I've never seen? I've never seen someone pray at a Dairy Queen. Like, have you ever seen somebody get an ice cream cone and they're standing there and they're just, thank you, Lord, for this wonderful bounty of milk and sugar. It's so glorious. I've never seen someone pray at a Starbucks, praying over their coffee. And it's weird because they'll get like a, a double bacon and cheddar breakfast sandwich on a croissant and they won't pray if you're at a Starbucks, but if you get that same sandwich at first watch, you better pray. Here's one that the comedian brought out that I experience all the time. It's a little bit of a more sensitive subject, but I'm going to trust that you are a mature spiritual family and that we all love each other, so I know that you can handle it. When I'm out with a group of people, there's this unspoken thing that happens, especially amongst Christians, but even with people who do not follow Jesus, and it happens nearly every time. At some point, all the eyes turn to whoever has the religious title next to their name, whoever is outwardly viewed as the most spiritual person, and they are supposed to pray. You know how that goes, right? You're kind of looking around like, are you going to do it? Are you going to, uh, that, that guy we know, or that girl we know, they're a spiritual person, so all the eyes kind of go there, and you expect them then to initiate and to pray. And if I'm the only pastor at the table, then it's like some kind of unwritten code that that's my job. That's what I'm supposed to do. But the thing is, if I'm with Pastor Chris, then guess what? Like, I'm off the hook. <laughs> Everybody looks over at him, and I'm like, hey, I, I just get to sit back, relax. And so if you're at a table and you don't have a pastor or a missionary, you're like looking for the bridge's barista or a volunteer. But everybody finds that person to say, hey, is this the person who's supposed to pray? Now, when you think about all of this, maybe it's just to show respect. And in a day where respect for leaders in the church is disappearing, the truth is that's deeply appreciated. But there's often a sliver of completely upside down thinking that's mixed in there too. And it's this. This is where it gets a bit more serious. It's the idea that God listens to some people more than others. It's the idea that some people have some kind of special access to God, even within the faith, over others. It, it reveals how easily we all fall under the influence of comparison. Comparison. And comparison always leads to self-righteousness to religious elitism, 
to a spiritual superiority complex and a building up of our own religious caste systems where without even speaking a word, we communicate our belief that some people have more value than others based upon the perception, our perceptions, our fleshly perceptions, perceptions, our skin deep perceptions of their spirituality. That way of thinking is what we see exposed in Luke chapter 7. Last week, we began our series, Soul Food, when a meal with Jesus was more than food. And we're looking at the role that meals played in the ministry of Jesus. And in verses 36 through 50, in this chapter, we find a shocking story involving Jesus, who offers and shows grace, a Pharisee named Simon, who rejects and is disgusted by Jesus' grace, and a woman of the city, most likely a prostitute, who understands and embraces Jesus' grace. So often we come to these stories and think, I'm not any of the characters here. I know I'm not Jesus. I don't think I'm Simon, and I'm not a harlot. But even our simple pre-mail prayer posturing reveals that we wrestle with the exact same issues and temptations of spiritual hierarchy and anti-kingdom ways of thinking as the men and women we read about. So here's what we need to ask ourselves as we get into this text this morning. How do I know when I have become blinded by self-righteousness? How do I know if I am blinded by self-righteousness? And that's a, that's a question not just for the believer, but for everyone. Certainly for those who do not follow Jesus, but for all of us. The thing is, if it's a blind spot, that means you can't see it, at least not on your own. But the Spirit of God can show it to you. That's how we grow in our faith and become more like Jesus in who we are and how we live. So by the grace of God's Spirit, we will know whether we have fallen into this trap of self-righteous elitism based upon our response to Jesus' grace. Our response to Jesus reveals our grasp of his grace. Look at verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Now, we don't exactly know why Simon the Pharisee invited Jesus to dinner. Luke doesn't tell us. We know that Pharisees believed that God would liberate Israel from Rome and bring God's kingdom to the earth through Israel's moral purity to the law. So maybe he invited him uh, because he was a local celebrity and his celebrity was rising and it looked good to the community. Uh, maybe he was curious about his teaching. Maybe he invited him over simply uh, to build up his own reputation so when other traveling rabbis would come into town, they would know what to receive and expect from him. Whatever his reasons about the purity of the nation or about the teaching of Christ, we know he was intentionally antagonistic towards Jesus. He was intentionally antagonistic towards Jesus. It was common courtesy to put your hand on the shoulder of a guest and greet them with a kiss of peace on the cheek. Simon didn't. It was common courtesy to have a servant take off your guest's sandals and to wash their feet from the dirty roads before they reclined at the table to eat. Simon didn't. It was common courtesy to anoint a guest with a touch of oil to show hospitality. Simon didn't. Simon's 
home here, it would have most likely been built around a central courtyard. And the way these were constructed was they would leave the doors open at the homes of the wealthy. And then within that central courtyard, they'd set up a U-shaped table. You've probably seen it in paintings and pictures. And what they would do is they would recline on their left elbow with their feet away from the table so that they would only touch the food with their right hand. And then they would speak with one another as well. Why did they not use their left hand? You can figure that out, but it had to do with cleanliness. Uh, Why did they keep their feet away? Obvious reasons for cleanliness. They wanted nothing impure near the food. And so when Jesus walks in, uh, Simon doesn't do any of the normal customs. Jesus then reclines at table. That's all we're told. That's all we know. And what they would do is they would leave all the doors to the house open so that townspeople could come and listen in to the conversation happening around the elite around that table. And so your job was to stand on the side and be interested and listen and learn and experience, but to be silent as you watch the dignitaries and the Pharisees and the Sadducees or whoever the politicians or the leaders might have been at the time have these conversations. Now Simon purposely let Jesus and everyone else who was around know that he didn't want Jesus to feel comfortable or welcome. It was a calculated, very public insult. And it was intentional. People, of course, when this happened, when he walks in and he reclines at table and all of these things are skipped over, which they would have all respected as a normal, just common, again, courtesy done for a local rabbi, when all of those things are are skipped, you know what's happening. The people around the outskirts, the people outside the home, inside the home, they start whispering. What's Simon doing? Why did he skip that? That's a power move. That's a power play. I wonder what's going to happen. But the tension, you could feel it in the room, and no words have been spoken yet, but you know that all the people that were there, they're just waiting for this explosion to happen. What's going to happen? Because what Simon just did was to Jesus, completely just basically saying, you're not worthy to sit at this table, but I'll give you audience. Now, this is what happens next. And behold, verse 37, a woman of the city who was a sinner. Notice she's not given a name, just a label. How do you like to be labeled by the world? There's a good chance she'd been talked about by those Pharisees around that table probably before. When she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, she likely would have never stepped foot near this home because of what they thought of her. But when she found out Jesus was going, she was compelled to go. And she went with a box of white marble-like stone called alabaster that was filled with a precious ointment. Verse 38, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Why does she do this? Why is this her response? Sometime before this moment, and every commentator would agree that the tense of the words themselves point this out, she must have had an encounter previously with Christ. 
It could have been in a private conversation. It could have been a public sermon. Wherever and whenever it was, she experienced the love and grace of Jesus and the message that he had offered to sinners like her, and she received it, and it changed her. It transformed her. It was good news that she received. So maybe she is weeping with joy. Maybe she's weeping with gratitude for how his ministry and his words have transformed her life. Maybe she was weeping with sorrow because of the dishonor that Simon just demonstrated towards Jesus. She means to anoint his feet, but she's so overwhelmed in his presence with emotion that her tears simply start covering his feet, running streaks down the dirt. Now she has no towel. So she loosens her hair, moves to the ground, and dries his feet with her hair. Women were only permitted in that culture to let their hair down in the presence of their husband. The Talmud actually says that if a woman who is married is to let her hair down in front of another grown man, that is a reason for divorce, a legitimate reason for divorce. Rabbis put the loosening of a woman's hair in the same category as being partially disrobed. And then after she does this, she kisses his feet. The verb, the tense means she kisses them again and again, repeatedly. And she anoints his feet. This is why Luke says at the beginning here, behold, behold, because everybody's in shock. They're watching what Simon has not done. They're watching and waiting to see what Jesus will do. And then this woman of a reputation comes into the space and does this whole scene. She wasn't doing this in some kind of sexualized way at all. It was, a, it was simply a passionate, extravagant act of gratitude and love. She received his grace. So she offers him an outpouring of humility and love. It shows us that grace received from Jesus results in great love for Jesus. Now most of us, if we were there, we probably would have been embarrassed in this moment. Embarrassed about what was happening. Embarrassed for her. Embarrassed perhaps for Jesus. In their day, most were offended. Most of us would say, what is she doing? Why is she being so obnoxious? Why is she acting that way? Why, why is she making this season or this, this scene about herself? But the thing was, it wasn't about herself. That wasn't where her focus was on at all. And the thing is also, she's not a picture in the story of spiritual death. She's the character in the story. She's the picture of spiritual life and health. So this woman is the picture of spiritual, spiritual maturity Everybody else, specifically Simon, who's called out, is not. There is no doubt, there is no hiding, there is no wondering. This woman loved Jesus. And there is no doubt, there is no hiding, there is no wondering. This woman didn't do this to put a spotlight on herself. It was to put the spotlight on her Savior. When you recognize who you were without the grace of Jesus, that's the moment self-righteousness dies of suffocation. When you recognize that you would be utterly hopeless and helpless if it were not for the grace of Jesus, that's when spiritual elitism becomes mute. You have nothing to say. 
You think about it. Where would you be? Where would you be if it, not, if it were not for the grace of Christ? Who would you be if it were not for the grace of Christ? How would life be if it were not for the grace of Jesus? When that picture becomes clear, you will be compelled to passionate worship and extravagant gratitude. C.S. Lewis once wrote to a little girl, if you continue to love Jesus, nothing much can go wrong with you. And I hope you may always do so. Much may go wrong in the world, Much may go wrong around you. Much may go wrong in every other way, but the way that matters most. Your soul will be healthy and alive. How do I know when I'm blinded by self-righteousness? You are blind if the grace you received did not result in great love. If the grace you have received has not resulted in great love, is the spotlight on yourself or is it on your Savior. Up to this point, not a word has been spoken. Nothing has been said by anyone in the room. All, that is about, all of that is about to change because the woman's actions stand in blatant contrast to those of Simon the Pharisee. His response is the exact opposite of hers. Jesus' grace had little value to him. He had no need of it in his mind, so he had little love for Jesus. The Pharisee Well, grace was refused from Jesus' results and little love for Jesus. Look at verse 39. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. Isn't it a wonder that God knows what we say to ourselves? The very words we speak in our minds that never come out of our mouths, he knows all of those things, but he still chooses to pursue us with his grace. This man doesn't just judge the woman, he judges Jesus. And what does Jesus do in response? Does Jesus say, do you have any clue who I am, the Messiah, Son of God? Let me demonstrate that to your calloused heart. You be gone. Wipe them out. Destroy them. Take care of them. Get rid of them. Whatever it is. Does he abandon him? Threaten him? Condemn him? You know what he does? He does what we often find in Scripture. He tells a story and asks a question. He says, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's 500 days wages. The other 50, 50 days wages. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Jesus asked him a question. Is that what you do when people insult you? Is that what I do? Think about the first sin. What did God do with Adam and Eve? I mean, when you look at the story, when you read the Genesis account and you understand that an omnipotent God spoke all of the universe into creation and it wasn't long before these two human beings fell into rebellion. I mean, if he spoke all of it, it seemed fairly simply out of his extravagant unlimited power. He could have simply said, okay, that didn't work out. Let me try again. But he didn't. He says, where are you? He asked them a question. Was he confused on where they were? Were they just amazing at playing hide and seek? 
No. Questions expose people's hearts and position in relationship to God. God is helping them see. After Cain murders Abel, where's your brother? Jesus asked Judas, do you betray me with a kiss? Jesus asked Peter after his denials, do you love me? Jesus asked Paul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? The questions help us see. It's a gracious, patient response. What questions is God asking you? Where are you blind? Where do you need to see? Simon answers, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. So the one owed 10 times more than the other. You could say that the one sinner was 10 times worse than the other sinner. But that's not the point. That's not Jesus' main point here. The main point is that neither one of them could pay. The difference is the woman knew she couldn't pay, while Simon had no clue he even had a debt. You might say, but, but, but don't we all agree there are sinners, and there are sinners? Like, you know, there, there's, there's some sinners in the world, but then there's sinners in the world. What happens when God chooses to extend his grace to people that you really don't like? People who don't hold your values, believe like you do, who might infringe on your freedom. What if this was the transgender woman who just beat your daughter to win the swimming tournament? What about the tyrant sending your son into war from his yacht? What about the politician passing insurmountable debt onto your children? What about the professor filling the heads of young adults with twisted half-truths wrapped up in self-righteous secularism? Don't we all know that there are sinners? You know, people like you and me. Religious people. You know, we, we do some stuff. We have some falls, but, but we're not sinners. I'm, I'm so glad I'm in this room with just, just sinners. <laughs> and not any sinners. You know, all uppercase, sinners, people of violence, people of perversion, people of excess, people like the woman from the city. Now Jesus says, no, friends, there are not sinners and sinners. There's just sinners. And you're one, and I'm one. All equally in need of his grace. Then turning towards the woman, verse 44, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? The question was meant to help him see. He was blind to her before. She was no one, nobody. Illegitimate outcast. Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. In other words, you don't love me, Simon, because you think your self-righteous currency will please God. But God doesn't accept that kind of currency. 
And that's the problem with so many people today, maybe for some of you in this room or some of you that are watching online, that the issue is you think that your debt is covered through your near spotless integrity. You think about the people in your life, you might think about those that you work with and you're like, look how they manipulate, look how they lie. I'm not like them. Comparison. You think your debt is covered through your near spotless purity. I'm not like them. Comparison. You think your debt is covered through your generosity, your commitment to a church family, your commitment to people in the community, the good that you do for the community. Those are all really good things. God recognizes and calls them good things, but none of them cancels your debt. Only the blood of Christ can do that. His perfection for your imperfection. His death for your life. The only currency God accepts is the currency of faith in the grace of his son. That's it. There's no other means. There's no other way. There's only one way to the Father. It is through the Son and the cross of Christ. Ephesians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 8, you know this verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. How do I know when I'm blinded by self-righteousness? You are blind if the grace you received did not result in great love. You are blind if you think there are sinners and sinners. As one great American evangelist used to say, oh, how hard it is to find sinners. I would go any distance to find a sinner who recognizes their need. We don't actually know in the story if Simon ever came around to faith, but we do know that the actions of this woman revealed a genuine faith that saved her soul. Look at verse 48, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It wasn't her actions that saved her. It wasn't this display that brought about eternal salvation for her. It was a previous moment. The tense of the verb even displays that. It was something that had happened prior. It was her faith in the message of Christ. So she wasn't doing all of these acts in order to receive grace. She had already received grace. Therefore, she responded with these acts of love. I have a continual kind of constant conversation with my children. I think about when we come together for our worship, and I say to them, man, when we come together for our worship, what kind of worship do we offer our Lord? And maybe it's because I'm 42 years old and I've had a lot more years, I tell them, of rebellion than you have. <laughs> but after these decades of rebellion, some of you more, some of you less, I know that when I stand in this space and whenever I'm here with the church family or even on my own and I think about the holiness of God, the depravity of my sin, if I really consider all that I am apart from Christ and his grace, I can't do anything else but lift up my voice, but lift up my hands, but lift up my life and say, all of it's for you. And yet so often, what do we do? We come together and it's like we passively just stand. 
And so God, he asks for our gratitude as a response to his grace. It results in passionate love, extravagant gratitude and worship. And this woman, that's exactly what she was doing. And I feel such conviction when I see her actions and I know what it's like in those moments where I lift up my voice, lift up my hands when I pray to the Lord and just say thank you. When I leave with a light spirit because I know I am a child of God through faith. And Jesus, in this story, makes some incredible claims, outrageous claims. He basically says, I know your thoughts even when you don't speak them. He says to them, I bring peace and I bring grace and you need both from me. He forgives sins. He is revealing that he is much more than a prophet. He is the Messiah. He is God incarnate. How do I know when I'm blinded by self-righteousness like Simon was? Well, for some today, maybe the Spirit is convicting you and you realize that you are blind to your self-righteousness if you have rejected Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Our response to Jesus reveals the grasp of his grace. Have you responded to Jesus in faith? If not, I pray that you will today. And if you have, I pray that your life, all of our lives would be a passionate display of gratitude for what he's done. This past week, I was able to attend the funeral of our dear Mary Anderson. Maybe some of you, many of you know her. She served Jesus with her husband, Pastor Dave Anderson, for decades. Many of those years were while Pastor A, uh, that's what some of us call him, Pastor A served here as the senior pastor of Woodside. Many more were as a volunteer. But everyone who interacted with Mary, and it came out in all the testimonies this week at her funeral, understood that she lived a life of extravagant love and extravagant grace for her Savior. I learned a few things about her as the family was sharing. One thing I never knew about her was that she was adopted. And she had written her testimony a few years back, and in that testimony, she had a couple paragraphs kind of talking about that part of her life and talking about what it meant that she came to faith in Jesus and how that really changed her and how she thought about those things. And as I heard it read by her son this week, my mind immediately went to this text that we just heard this morning. And I thought it was so relevant. Here's what she wrote, a couple excerpts from her testimony. I became friends with another pastor's wife when we lived in Canada. She was from Scotland and was also adopted. The difference was that her birth certificate was stamped in very large letters, illegitimate. All her life she had to show that certificate. All her life she felt illegitimate. When she married her husband, she, couldn't, uh, she could then use her marriage license as proof of who she was. Her marriage made her legitimate. I have often been grateful when I realized by adoption, God has made me a legitimate child of his. It made me a child of the king. She went on to say, we returned to Michigan around 1999. I remember sitting in the balcony of the old church at 16 Mile as we learned a new chorus, He Knows My Name. And I remember thinking there was a young woman who knew I existed but never knew my name. And there was a young man who perhaps never even knew I existed. 
But that was not important. God knew my name. My name was written on the palm of his hand. My name has been written in the book of life. The woman of the city was never named, but Jesus knew her name. The world labeled her a sinner. The world labeled her illegitimate. Jesus labeled her forgiven. Simon never saw her as anything other than an illegitimate outcast. Jesus saw her as a loving disciple full of faith. In the end, friends, it won't matter how the world sees you. It will only matter how Jesus does. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of this story. And I pray for any that are here this morning. And when they hear the situation of this woman, maybe they are filled with conviction over their sin. The labels that they've placed on on themselves or the labels that others have placed upon them. And Father, we know that Jesus in his grace and mercy will take the repentant heart of any sinner and wash it completely clean. There is mercy in you. So Father, I pray that if there be any here today, any online who are under the weight of their sin, who are acknowledging their own currency, their own self-righteousness, and that those things will not cover or cancel that debt. That in these moments, they would have the courage to pray, Jesus, forgive me. Take my sin. Wash me clean. I know that your life, your death, your blood has made a way. It's the only way I give my life to you. Let my response be one of gratitude and love. And Father, for all of us who have, Father, may we leave this place not with a bigger burden. The burden's been removed. Sin has been atoned for. It's been covered over. There's victory for us through your death and the resurrection of your son. We have a hope. We have a future. We have a purpose. We have an identity because of him. So may our worship be pleasing to you. May we lift up our voice and shout with all of our praise, you are worthy, you are good, you are mighty, you have set us free in Christ. So Father, we give you our praise. It's in the powerful name of Jesus we pray. And all of us together said, amen. Let's stand and sing. Let's sing about our freedom. Let's sing about our grace. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.